This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we preview this week's Refract Festival in Seattle. Meet the British industrial designer Matthew Hilton and head back to Seattle for a workshop. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. In the US, the city of Seattle is somewhat of a mecca for glassblowers. For decades, many of the world's leading glass artists have called the city home, a fact that wasn't well known beyond the industry's professional circles. But in a bid to change this, Refract, the Seattle Glass Experience, launched a few years ago. The four-day festival highlights the Pacific Coast city as a hub for glass art and design. Now in its fifth year and running later this week, from October 12 to 15, it helps showcase Seattle's unique glass-blowing talent to the general public. Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Rossiter, visited the city to discover why it's such a special place for glass design. On any given day, downtown Seattle is always a buzz. Sitting at the foot of the iconic Seattle Space Needle is Chihuly Garden and Glass. Upwards of half a million tourists flock here each year to see the permanent $20 million all-glass exhibition housed within these walls. It's a central venue for the upcoming Refract Seattle Glass Experience. And really, it's all thanks to one artist here that's made Seattle truly the heart of the global glass art scene. I'll let Taryn Coles, the assistant director at Chihuly Garden and Glass, explain. It really goes back to Dale Chihuly, who is an artist who is from Tacoma, which is just south of Seattle. He grew up in this area, and Dale Chihuly is really known for awakening studio glass in America. He really brought glass as an art form out of the factories and into personal studios where artists were really making things that were self-expression. And like a lot of artist movements, it all started at a grassroots level. Here's Taryn Coles again. In 1971, he invited artists from all over the world to come out to a tree farm just north of here. And that experiment became Pilchuck Glass School, which is still in operation today and is really responsible for all of these artists settling in this area. Seattle has the perfect climate for glass blowing. It never gets too hot, it's moist, and so people just flocked here and then really established an amazing collaborative community. And over the past 50 years since that first meeting of glass blowers at a tree farm, the glass community has exploded. Seattle now has more artists working in glass per capita and with more resources for studio glass than anywhere else in the world. That's exactly why glass artist Minhee England moved to the city 13 years ago. It was after she caught the so-called glass bug in art school. As soon as I stepped into the studio, I immediately fell in love with glass. It's a funny thing because you kind of know that it is an irrational pursuit, but 
that feeling of just knowing there's so many things in life that are unsure, but that feeling was for sure. I knew I wanted to pursue glass for the rest of my life. And I think mostly it's that I knew it would hold my attention. I never wanted to change my career path. So immediately I just knew. I kind of was already starting to get bored of being a 2D artist and glass just caught that spark that I was really looking for. Blowers. And now glass artists are getting another platform that is really putting the spotlight on the medium and Seattle-based artists. Welcome to the Hot Shop. This season, my expectations are higher. We expect you to push your technical and conceptual skills to the limit. All right, let's blow some glass. The Netflix series Blown Away has been running for four seasons. Terms like Hot Shop, Pauline Kane, and knowing what an annealer is have kind of become known in households across the world thanks to glassblowing education that viewers take in from watching the show. Are you ready? Yeah, the pressure's high. The heat's a little higher. This glass can crack at any second. It's a one-shot deal. It has opened the hot shop to so many people that don't have that everyday access. This is going to be a hell of a competition. So close, so close. Some of the world's top glass blowers from the already small community have been on the reality series. In fact, Minhi England was the runner-up in season three. She says that the show has helped more people appreciate the medium. Blown Away has really put glassblowing on the map and it's conjured up all of this excitement in the glass world, which it very much needed. And it's fantastic because I think that glassblowing does have this drama and this excitement. And if you don't know about the process, it's really hard to fully appreciate the end result when you have no idea how it's even made. There's so much skill and technique and experience and thought that goes behind the process that Blown Away has really shown that to the general public. Dan Friday is a Seattle glass artist who is also part of Blown Away Season 3 alongside Minhi England. But unlike many glass artists, he didn't get his start in glass blowing through going to art school kind of by proxy of being in Seattle and the large uh, network and community of glass artists here. I walked into a shop one day and I knew that that's what I wanted to do and kind of changed my career and life path as like a low-level criminal and tow truck driver into a glass apprentice, I guess. <laughs> and if there's one thing about glass art, it's that it takes a lifetime to perfect your technique. Dan Friday shows me some of his latest artwork that's on display. It's several colorful salmon glass sculptures that are hanging on the wall, which call on his indigenous Coast Salish ancestry from the local region. He explains how historically in the world of glass making, this is how it all kind of started. You know, in 4,000 years of making glass, some of the first things they made were glass fish, beads twisted on mandrels in Mesopotamia and Egypt and, and stuff like that. And fast forward to 4,000 years later, 
it took me 25 years of making real ugly fish till I figured out this design to make a fish that I like. They were just too heavy to make solid and have this impact that these full-size ones do. So adding the blown and solid element really kind of turned that page for me. And I'm, I'm proud to add my little benchmark of 4,000 years of glass fish history, and these are mine. Refract the Seattle Glass Experience is a chance for visitors to see why the specific northwestern city is home to such global glassblowing talent. Dan Friday is an artist who will be taking part. Minhi England will also be one of several artists doing a glassblowing demonstration. Hers will be six hours long, but as Taryn Coles from Chihuly Garden and Glass says, getting that up-close experience to see an artist truly at work is really what the festival is all about. One of the things that makes Refract so special is that it is about opening up artist studios that are normally private. It is highlighting gallery exhibitions. A lot of the galleries and museums in our area are holding special exhibitions and inviting special visiting artists for Refract so that Everyone's here at the same time. They have this opportunity to really showcase the medium. For Monocle in Seattle, I'm Sheena Rossiter. Refract Festival runs from the 12th to the 15th of October at various sites in Seattle, Washington. The British designer Matthew Hilton is known for his work in furniture, industrial and product design. And now he's taking a step into the world of sculpture. Monocle's Laura Kramer stopped by a private viewing of Tough Work, his debut sculpture show at Paul Smith Gallery Space in London's Mayfair. Laura began by asking Matthew how long he's been working on the project. I think it's seven years. I mean, it's very flexible, that number. It could be 30 years or it could be, I don't know, three. But seven seems about right. Because seven was really when I started to think that my kind of obsession with sculpture and 3D forms, I might, that I might be able to do something for real with that, that actually makes sculpture rather than, or as well as perhaps, designing furniture. I've been designing furniture since when, I don't know, the end of the 80s, the middle of the 80s, something like that. Quite a long time. And I love finding out about how things are made. I love making things. I have huge respect for craftspeople and engineers and anybody involved with making stuff. My designing for all this time, I've always had to be working within the kind of the commercial constraints of, of making furniture. And it's given me a great career and it's been fantastic. But there is always that. There's always the framework, the constraints, the price point or the function of the piece of furniture or the market demanding certain things and I wanted something somewhere where I could just be creative and just make stuff that I want to make. I've been thinking about it for a long time and I think seven years is because I think that's when I really started thinking perhaps I could actually do it. I can't remember my first conversation with Paul but there was a time some time ago when I was going around to see people I knew who I thought might be interested and Paul has always been really encouraging and supportive and has bought my work and 
so on. I went to see him in his office, a crazy, you know, mad collection of things that he has. I don't know if you've ever seen a photograph of it, but he's got, I don't know, racing bikes and bits of Formula One cars and books and books and books and books and clothes and baseball bats and everything. And I went to see him and I showed him a portfolio of drawings, which he said were really interesting and I should keep in touch with him and talk to him about the development of work and so on. So after about three years, I guess, after that, I went to him again when I'd thought things through a bit further and I'd developed the ideas more and so on and I kind of knew a bit more what I was doing. And he introduced me then to Alan Snowball, who's the guy who organises this kind of event. And I kept in contact then with Alan. And sorry if this is a bit long-winded. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> the whole time, you know what I find fascinating is I can see that you can see it in your mind as you talk about it, uh, which is something mm. so special, I think, with mm. creatives. That's how they see mm. objects, too. It's like they're there. That is true. The work, there are various themes. One is this obsession with how things are made, particularly with industrial making. Not so much, I, I have great respect for craft, but I'm less interested in that. I'm interested in the kind of, the raw kind of heavy engineering, the stuff that doesn't really often produce beautiful objects. It produces bits of engines, bits you don't see, you know, bits that go inside buildings, hidden behind concrete, inside trucks, that kind of thing. <laughs> that heavy, noisy, dirty, smelly, hot, you know. But the people who work in those places, well, when I'm talking to those guys, who have great skills and fantastic knowledge, when I'm talking to them about what I want to make, I can see that they're starting to think, how do we make this? What are the problems going to be? How do we get around those problems? That process of working with somebody who knows exactly how something's made, I know quite a bit, but I don't know exactly, and working together so that I get exactly what I want, but they can make something. And I just love that. That true collaboration spirit yeah, that you get from yeah. that. Yeah, but I don't want to be... I want to be making what I want to make. <laughs> I don't want to have... I don't want, I'm not answering a brief, or it's my brief. It's my... Uh, it's the stuff that I've made for myself, my, my rules. It must be very freeing for it's you. Exactly, it's freeing. Exactly, and it's fun and it's playing, you know, really, kind of. It's very internal and... At some point, when, when, when particularly in the, in the pure creative stages, it's, yeah, I have to be alone and I have to be quiet and I put some very quiet music on and stuff goes on in your head. So there's just quite a long period of internal questioning and making some rules and answering them and finding out what it is I'm trying to do, which I'm not used to doing in furniture because I'm, I'm set a kind of a problem to solve when I'm designing. So it's a, it's a very different thing. But having that control and freedom is really great. Design is definitely a collaborative thing, very collaborative. And I, and I like that in this as well, but it's a different emphasis. So were these, you mentioned, you've always thought about it, these pieces that we're gonna see here today, did you have you know your secret book that you had all the drawings out? Did you no, just- No, no. I have some artists, sculptors, painters whose work I love 
I had to kind of, I had to work out, I suppose, I mean, it's easy talking about it. Not that easy, but it's, it's easier talking about it now than it was then. Because I, I knew that I wanted to do it, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. I didn't know what I wanted to say. I didn't know what the work was going to be about. So I was just exploring stuff. I have masses of photographs of all kinds of things, of, of factories I've been to, grates, you know, cast iron grates in the pavement, uh, door handles, um, traffic bollards, axles of trucks, all kinds of stuff. It must be so exciting to see inspiration everywhere and even in the stuff that most people would nice. overlook. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's, I think that's what this is really, is trying to bring that out, trying to draw attention to this, things that I think are beautiful around us that I mean, you know, and a lot of art is about that. It's, it is saying, look again, or look closer, or, you know, appreciate the world in some way. Obviously, you have such a, you're such a renowned person in the world of furniture and design, but I would imagine that in this new aspect, you must have many emotions. Are you scared? How do you feel? I have been. Well, there's been a lot of self-questioning. There's been a lot of, why am I doing this? What am I putting myself through? What is the point? I have a girlfriend who has been extraordinarily encouraging and supportive, and I don't think I would have done it, done it without her. I am nervous, but I'm excited as well. And I can feel, because I've sensed when I talk to people about what I'm wanting to do, even from early days, people were excited even without seeing anything. They just, I don't know why, I don't know if it's a romantic idea of sculpture, you know, some, I don't know, muscular man chiseling marble or something. I don't know what it is, but people find sculpture exciting. When I tell people I'm a, I'm a furniture designer, there's always interest, but when I say I'm making sculpture, I, wow, it's like carrying a baby around, you know? So, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Anyway, so I, so I had a very positive reaction. And then I started talking to friends, very carefully chosen friends, and they were positive. And then little by little, as ideas developed, you know, I had to show a few more people. And so I kind of, I had reassurance, but yeah, of course, I, I, I've been nervous and I probably still am nervous now, although I feel like now I just want to have a bit of fun. The industrial designer Matthew Hilton in conversation with Monocle's Laura Kramer. The exhibition, Tough Work, runs at the Paul Smith Gallery space in London's Mayfair until the 30th of October 2023. We'll be right back after this. Searching for some bright new ideas to kickstart your summer? The Monocle Companion 50 Ideas for a Better World is our cheery new paperback and it's on newsstands now. Brimming with thoughtful essays, our new book is the ideal summer companion to snuggle up with on your sun lounger. Under the covers, you'll find insights on entrepreneurship. You'll learn from thinkers, authors and essayists. And it tackles everything from how to travel better to the difficulty of doing nothing at all and why words matter. From big topics to small intrigues, this is a book that offers inspiration, ideas, wit and wisdom. The Monocle Companion, 50 Ideas for a Better World, is out now. Buy your copy today at monocle.com slash shop or on all good newsstands.
Finally on today's show, it's back to Seattle to take a look at a global trend. In architecture, firms that can make prototypes and models on-site have a competitive advantage when meeting client demands. In some design practices, this dusty and noisy fabrication work is relegated to dark basements. This was the case for Seattle-based LMN Architects. But earlier this year, the firm's partners decided to shine some daylight onto its fabrication lab. It upgraded to a ground-floor storefront, now called The Shop, which is located across the street from the firm's offices. It's a move that has seen LMN staff linger in the sunlight-filled, tall-ceilinged former bank, contributing to the local neighbourhood's street life. Naturally, Monocle's Gregory Scruggs fired up the power tools to find out more. My name's Hank Butita. I'm the shop manager at LMN Architects. I've been working here since 2016. I was hired as an architectural designer, but I've always been more comfortable with the tools. So sometime in the last handful of years, I shuffled over to become the shop manager. Great. Well, could you give us a tour of the space, show us around, and, and what all's going on here? Absolutely. Our shop space is about 6,000 square feet, so that's about six times as much room as we had to work with in the old basement. We've laid it out such that the central space, which is about 2,000 square feet, is entirely flexible. It has workbenches that can be moved around and rolling walls that we can pin up materials, but it lets us kind of use that space for any event or project that might come up. And then around the edges of the space, we have assembled our tools and workstations. So on one side of the room, we have about 1,000 square feet dedicated to our woodworking equipment, which includes all the traditional analog tools like table saw, miter saw, joiner, planer, drill press, etc. But we also have the CNC machine, which is one of the workhorses of the shop. The CNC is a essentially a robot that will cut out whatever we draw for it. The working area for our CNC machine is 5 feet by 10 feet which lets us work with almost any sheet good that we can find on the market. And we use it to make things such as everything from cabinetry to site models. It gives a lot of flexibility. On the other side of the room, we have our workstations for staff. We have about 16 workstations set up, and just a few of those are dedicated to shop staff, and the rest are flexible seating for whoever wants to come down and work, ranging from individuals who want to change their scenery for the day to teams that want to come down for workshops or charrettes. We also have our Digifab area, which has a laser cutter and 3D printers, which lets us really automate the process of the model making. We also have over on this side of the room our lounge area, which has our pool table and kegerator, which were not originally part of my intention for the shop, but it became an important social space. And at the direction of some of the partners, we added that equipment. Um, and it's been a great thing to have for our happy hours over here. We also, in the back of the room, have a new metal space, which is a skill set that we're growing on now. We did not have access to metal working equipment before in our old shop. So now we have the ability to bend, cut, drill, weld metal. So that gives us a lot of new capabilities. Very impressive, and I'm sure a far cry from the old basement. What led you to outgrow that previous fabrication shop? I'm Scott Crawford. I'm a partner here at Element Architects in Seattle, Washington. So in 2018, we were presented with a situation where a small experimental performance space that we were working on for the Seattle Symphony, which is just a couple blocks away from our office, we had a highly customized ceiling system that we had designed for the space, and we were having an issue with finding a fabricator that was willing to build the design that we had come up with. We had already proved it out to ourselves with some of our own mock-ups that it was possible. And so with the fact that no one else was willing to make it, we decided to go the route of making it ourselves. This required us to make over six 
hundred different shaped cells that all get folded up together and hung within the space. And in the process of doing that, we basically shut down and broke our entire shop space. We didn't have enough room for material storage. We didn't have enough room for laying out parts that we already finished. And on top of that, we were taking and having to flood the space just with all the remnants of pieces that were coming off the table. When we finally finished that, there was a lot of intrigue for the rest of the office as to our ability to work in that realm, to be able to deliver final products for our projects. But there was also a recognition that we probably couldn't ever do what we did in that basement again, just because of how it shut down everything else. So at that time, we put together a small group in the office that came up with a vision for how we might make fabrication a more essential piece of what we do here at LMN. And what that basically pointed towards was we needed a much larger space to be able to do that. And we started looking around the Pioneer Square neighborhood. We wanted something that was close by and going to be convenient for those in the office to regularly come to. And luckily, we found a space that was just right across the street. How does having a fabrication shop allow you to prototype ideas that your contractors are not necessarily convinced are even possible to essentially get something off of the design table and into the real world and and thus bridge that gap with the partner that will eventually be executing on your designs? So a lot of firms that have fabrication resources, those resources are dedicated to model making, which would be modeling an entire building or site at a small scale. And I think one of the things that sets our shop apart from the resources other firms have is that we put a large emphasis on working at full scale, including mock-ups and installations. And the reason that mock-ups are such a valuable thing for us to, to work on is that it helps persuade clients and contractors, and sometimes ourselves, of the viability of our designs. So our office leans pretty heavily on parametric design, and that is essentially design where instead of drawing each individual element, we essentially write software that draws a lot of the elements for us. So it becomes a complex enough project that it can intimidate a lot of traditional contractors or clients. And so for us to be able to model these things at full scale, it can help persuade them that our ideas work and should be pursued. So we have, I think a a great example of that happening would be the mock-ups we did for the plant sciences building at Washington State University. And in that situation, we had a facade that we knew was going to be made of precast concrete panels that were going to have embedded thin bricks on the face to look kind of like a traditional brick facade, but done in a way that is much more kind of efficient from an assembly standpoint. But a lot of those systems can end up looking very flat and without a lot of depth or life to them. And we wanted to add some depth to this system by essentially twisting the bricks to extend out from the surface. And we wrote a script, essentially, that drew bricks that twisted an alternating pattern to give this system depth. And the contractor looked at this design with a lot of skepticism and said, we don't think that we can, we can make these, that this process is too challenging, too difficult, the mold is going to fail, etc." And we took that as a challenge, and we went through a number of mock-ups in our shop where we would machine a positive showing the actual brick out of foam that looked like the final brick element, and then we would cast the negative in rubber, and then finally we would cast in concrete 
the final part with thin bricks. And it took us a couple of iterations to get it right, but we were eventually able to produce a part that is, I would say it's about two feet high and three feet wide. It has a few dozen bricks on it, but it clearly shows the successful pattern. It weighs a few hundred pounds. It was a bit of a challenge for us in the old space, but it was an extremely persuasive piece to bring to the conversation. And it essentially convinced the contractor that it was in fact feasible. They actually resisted for a while approaching it the same way we did. And they ran into so many struggles that they had to resign to the fact that we had done it the correct way. Now, is it all client work here or does having free reign over an old bank allow for other creative pursuits? One of the interesting aspects of this space that we didn't see in the other spaces we explored is a high ceiling. We've got 21-foot high ceilings in the center of this space, which gives us room to work in ways that we weren't quite able to before. Last year, before we had converted this space into a shop, our first project in here, when it was still basically an empty bank, was to build a, an installation for the Seattle Design Festival, which was a pavilion that stood almost 20 feet tall and nearly touched the ceiling. And it was a Part of the reason for taking on that project was simply to to take advantage of room that we didn't have before. Along the lines of contributing to the Seattle Design Festival, I gather you also see this street-level storefront as a resource for the broader design and cultural community here in town. The first Thursday art walk that we did in August, it was being put on by two members of our office who both do sculpting work outside of the office, as well as one of their friends that is a professional sculptor. And it's being able to take and not only showcase that work in their design process, and I think the demonstrations that they were also doing were really great for people to see, but it's also allowing us to invite the broader community into the space to see some of those things going on. So not wanting to just only showcase the the work that our office is producing, but highlight the types of things that we think enrich the broader community. Scott Crawford and before that, Hank Batita. They were in conversation with Monocle's Gregory Scruggs. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with help from Steph Chungu and Mariella Bevan. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.